Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Chof Gimel. I'm going to go from the sixth, ninth last line of Chof Beis Amud Beis, 22b. And today she is Le'ilu Nishmas Ben Zion Ben Ze'ev Avram Halevi, Shulamit Bas Ben Zion Mordechai, David Yisrael Ben Chanoch Yitzchak, and Yehuda Bas Shmuel. Yehudis Ida Bas Shmuel. May their memory be a blessing and may their Neshama have an Aliyah. Yeah, and for a full shleim of, of Ruvain ben Lay, may he have a complete and speedy recovery. Um, today's the today's the thirty seventh day of the Omer. It hayom shivah shloishim yom shayim chamishah shuvos ushnei yomim ba'omer. The, yeah, so as I said, we're going from the bottom of Chof Beis and Beis. Remember yesterday we were discussing, we got onto a tangent and we were discussing the difference between Shaul and David. Shaul, Shaul for, for whatever reason, his one Avera of not killing Agag um, was taken up by, um, was caused him to lose his kingship. David, we noted two severe Averas that we don't find a clear punishment for. And that did not cost him his kingdom. And now we're carrying on with uh, other comparisons in, in leadership. Interestingly, when you analyze this piece carefully, you start to see themes, even though they sound like distinct points, they're actually themes running through it of lessons in leadership and the qualities that a Jewish king has to have. Um, differences between David and Shaul, which made the one a very successful king and the other one a not so successful king. Um, so it says, Ben Shona Shaul Bamalcho. The Pasuk says that Shaul was one year when he started to rule. Now, obviously, the simple meaning can't be, t- we can't take it at face value that he started ruling as a one year old baby. Um, but so many commentaries on the Pasuk take it as in his first year of reign. But one, but what is the drosha? Why is it expressed as he was a one-year-old when he ruled? So Omar of Huda, Kepen Shana Shaloi Tam Tom Chait. He was purely innocent. He was innocent like a one-year-old who hadn't ever sinned. He had never tasted sin. Matki Flor of Nachum by Yitzchak for Eimer Kepen Shana Shemeluchlach Betitu Vetzoy. He says no. Maybe when we mean he's a one-year-old, we don't mean that he's clean from sin like a one-year-old. We mean that he was. Um, Dirty and muddy like a one-year-old often is. So Zachfinu le Ram Nachman Nachman had terrible nightmares after making that suggestion that Shaul was not clean like a one-year-old, not innocent like a one-year-old, but dirty, I full of averas like a not like a one-year-old, but like we find a one-year-old is often muddy. So to think, so to Shaul was, and he had these terrible nightmares. So Amr Nanesi Lachem Atmos Ben Shaul Ben Kish Shaul Ben Kish. He says, I. Submit myself to you, Shaul ben Kish. Hadar He still saw these, had these terrible nightmares. So Amar Nenaisi Lachem Atmos Shaul ben Kish, Melech Yisrael. He says, I subject to you, submit myself to you, to the bones of you, Shaul ben Kish, the king of Yisrael. And then he was uh, saved from those terrible nightmares. So interesting enough, Shaul still deserved the respect of a king. Why was the kingship of Shaul not extended? I wanted to not hand it over to his sons. Because he had no blemish, no def- defect in his lineage. 
We do not appoint a king over the Jews unless he has a bag of shrotsim. I think we would say skeletons in his closet hanging over him. So that if he gets arrogant, we tell him, look behind, look what's in your closet. Don't get too uh, pompous, too confident in yourself and too arrogant. And now this is, a, what is this referring to these skeletons in the closets? On the simple, if you look, Shaul's lineage was, as we said, unblemished. It was perfect going back to Binyamin. Um, if you look at David Melech, I mean, from the start, whose his ancestor was Yehuda and Tamar which was a questionable, um, a questionable union. His grandmother, great-grand, yeah, his, his ancestor was Rus Hamovia. Besides, for there was the whole question of, is a Jew even allowed to marry a woman from Moab? There's added to that, is Moab come from Lot and his daughters, incest. So, David had a lot of uh, skeletons in his closet, a lot to keep him humble. I mean, on the surface, this sounds like you want a ruler who's, who doesn't have entitlement, who doesn't have the sense that he's owed the position, that he's owed thing, and that he's there as a responsibility, not as a right or, a, or because he deserves it, um, which is quite amazing. Um, just There's a lot to discuss on this. I think um, just one quick question is, why did David have to have, granted he had to have impure lineage, but to come from a non-Jew, to come from Rus and Moab? So the one answer given that I heard, I think in the name of the Kotzka Rebbe, is that we know that Jews are very timid people, naturally. They by Shanim, as we know the Rambam says, the qualities of a Jew, by Shodim, Glomle, Chasodim, and Rachmonim. They're merciful, they're bashful, and their do kindness. So that's not necessarily the qualities you want in a ruler. You need a little bit of non-Jewish blood in the ruler to be able to dominate and control B'nai Israel. We actually find Shaul's main, a lot of Shaul's failings were not necessarily things that he did wrong, but where he was drawn after following the people as opposed to leading him. Either people came to Shaul and said, let's keep the cattle of Amalek. And Shaul went along with it. He justified it and went along with it. Um, elsewhere, we find Shaul, we're going to see another example. We find that Shaul gave into the people a lot. He didn't have that strength that sometimes you need in a ruler to take the unpopular opinion and do what is best and right over what is popular. Um, another um, a phenomenal thing to think about, and obviously that's discussed in the, um, elsewhere, but why uh, we touched on this is why do why did David I mean we've mentioned some points but why does a ruler why does David we find the the Malchus based David our king our royal dynasty and hopefully soon is going to be Moshiach is going to stem from them had all these skeletons in their closet like why was it essential to royalty that David Amelech was uh, came from all these uh, illicit uh, Relationships, and it seems also that he had some uh, averas in his past. Um, so that's yeah, that's something important to think about, especially I mean, coming up to Shvuas with Rus, the story, the lineage of David, and why is it that David had to come from such? I mean, we've mentioned one point is we want him to be humble, 
but it seems quite extreme um, that for, that he has to have such a lineage. Yeah. One thing I got to say when I look at the psukim, it's very hard to see. Um, as we say, Shaul started off as a huge tzaddik, but as his life went on, he seemed to make some really grave mistakes. He let Amalek survive in direct, direct um, denial and going against Hashem's word. He killed, he wiped out the whole city of Kohanim on suspicion of treason. They had a very good justification, but he was blinded by his hatred for David. He, uh, he did, there were a few things that he did that seemed to like really almost be a Rosha. And here we see when uh, um, there's others, here we see that it says that, um, who was it, Rev, uh, Rav Nachum Yitzchak had terrors when he didn't show Shaul the proper respect. So is that because Shaul at the end of the day was really a tzaddik? Or was it just the king of Yisrael we always have to show respect for? regardless of their spiritual status. But it's something I'm not clear about whether Shaul was actually righteous, pious or not. It's, I really didn't find it so clear from the Tsukim. Okay, let's go on. Another point says, Why was Shaul punished? Because he waived his honor. Shenemar, as it says, this is when he was first anointed as king of When Shaul was first anointed as king, there were many lowly people who said, um, who, what, who's this guy to come and save us? And they didn't bring tribute to him and, they, and he was silent. He didn't punish them for their lack of respect to the king. And it's written, and then it's written that Nachash Amoni camped by Yovesh Gilad and Shaul went and he saved the Jews and it still carries on that when Shaul had the opportunity everyone said let's punish Shaul saved the, the residents of Yovesh Gilad and Shaul said and they asked Shaul can we go punish those who showed you disrespect now that your king is established and he said no let's leave it. So he says, And I think we're saying so to a king that does not take vengeance and bear grudge like a snake. is not considered a Talmud Chacham. So, so he's bringing this point is that the king has to stand up for his honor. And that was one of Shaul's failings is that he did not. He let people just... Speak badly about him, disregard him. Um, but doesn't the Pasuk say you're not allowed to take revenge and you're not allowed to bear a grudge? It says that Pasuk is actually referring to monetary, in monetary matters. I This that the Pasuk says you're not allowed to take revenge and bear a grudge is specifically monetary. The Tanya as we learned in Hebrew, what's considered revenge, and what's considered Natira, we generally translate as bear a grudge. What's Nakima? When your friend comes, to, when a friend goes to his friend, he says, can I borrow your hammer? And he says, or your sickle? And he says, no. And the next day he goes to his friend, and he, to the guy, and he says, can I borrow your axe? And the guy says, well, you didn't lend me your sickle. I'm not lending you my axe. 
So that's revenge. That's nekima. Lend me your axe. I, when the friend comes to borrow, he says, can I borrow your, your hammer? And the guy says, no. And then the next day he goes to his friend and says, can I borrow your shirt? And he says, yes, I'll lend you my shirt, even though you didn't lend me. Your axe or your hammer. We see that he bore a grudge. He harbored this thought in his heart. Um, now, obviously, if someone damages you, they cause monetary damage or they steal from you, etc. This concept of revenge to a large degree falls away. You can sue them in court. That's important to keep in mind. Um, and also, many of the posts can bring that it's not only about Natira, it's not only about speaking or acting out on it, it's thinking it. And Natira, as we see, is why are you not lending him your acts, his, your clothes, your shirt, your jersey? Because he's going to lend you something. Either the thought of the, the bearing that grudge in your heart is the issue. Um, interesting question. Sefer Achinuch asks, um, they go into, but it's quite a beautiful idea. What's the, how do you get bar? If someone does do something horrible to you, how do you not bear a grudge? How do you, re, re, how do you resist that? How do you get over that? So one thing that Sefer HaChinuch discusses when he goes into this mitzvah of um, the kim and the tira, etc. He says you have to remember, and also insulting when people insult you, um, you have to remember that everything that happens to you is almost with the don't want to say with the bracha of Hashem, but with Hashem's consent. Nothing can happen to you unless Hashem wills it to happen to you. And therefore, when someone insults you, when someone does something negative, you mustn't view it as, that person is mean, that person is horrible to me. You must try to view it as, oh, what's Hashem telling me? Why is Hashem sending this messenger to do this to me? What, uh, what must I be aware of? So almost don't view it as, Granted, as from your aspect, you shouldn't be mean and you shouldn't be horrible to people. And if someone needs something, you should lend it to them, etc. But from the aspect of when you're faced with someone like that, you shouldn't view it as them who's being mean. You should view it as a message from Hashem. Um, he says that you know, in regards to these mitzvahs and onas tovarim, etc. Um, also, when someone you know, teases you. Now the Gomorrah carries on. Um, so where, what have we said so far? That when someone... This that the Torah says you're not allowed to have take revenge or bear a grudge is specifically with monetary matters. I object. It says for law, you're telling me that there is no such thing as the Kimonatira when they just cause you other harm. I physical harm. Someone punches you, you're telling me there's no such there's no issue to take revenge by punching them back, or if someone insults you, there's no issue to insult them back. So he says, Vahotanya, we learned in a Braisa, Hanilvim Alvim, if someone bears or tolerates insult and he does not insult back, Shoimim Kherposon Vaino Mishivim, he bears his disgrace and he doesn't respond. Oisema and he accepts it with love, Vismechim Beyasurin, and he's happy with the suffering he's undergoing. I, this is the concept I was just speaking about, that you accept it as coming for, as a message from Hashem. So, Aleim HaKosov Oimer, from on them, the Apostle says, Those who love him, or those he loves, will come out, will 
shine like the sun in its in its strength. So what do we see? That there is such thing. There is a concept of not responding to an insult, not taking revenge when someone insults you or harms you. So No, that's where he bears the vengeance in his heart. But doesn't robbers say anyone who waves what's due to him, they wave his Averas in Shomayim? So that is where he appeases you. Right, so let's tie this all back to the main discussion, which is regarding a Tamud Chochom and a king. So it seems that a Tamud Chochom should not actually let it go. A Talmud Chacham should bear the grudge in his heart, and that is because when someone d- disgraces a Talmud Chacham, it's actually disgracing the Torah as well. So for him to be dismissive of it, or if someone disgraces the king, it's the kingship of Yisrael, it's a very, it's almost, I guess it's a disgrace to the whole Jewish people. And that's why the king and the Talmud Chacham should actually not let it go. And they should either let, they, it seems they're not allowed to necessarily act on it, but they should be all too happy and let other people act on it. And not only that, they should um, um, maybe where the opportunity comes about, then they should act on it. But they shouldn't just let it go. Again, it's the honor of B'nai Yisrael, the honor of the Torah in question. Um, they ask an interesting question on this. Many Rishonim is that we find other Gomorrahs which say that... Um, sorry, what was that? Yeah, Rabbi Nechunia ben Akana, huge Talmud Chacham, used to forgive any everyone before he went to sleep, and it seems a very meritorious practice. Is before you go to sleep, make sure to forgive everyone who's done harm or insulted you that day. So he says. So the one answer they give is it depends what type of harm is it. If they affecting, if they insulting the Torah or religion, then you have to stand up for it. If they just insulting the person personally then even the Talmud Chochom or the Rav should just tolerate it. Um, the Rambam seems to give a different answer. This is Rabbi Akiva Eger alludes to it on the previous page in the Gilyon Ashas, that um, it seems this is all, it depends whether we're discussing in private or public. If it's in private, then he can let it go and he should follow these good middos of uh, accepting and bearing insult. But if it's... Um, But if it's uh, but if it's in public, well, then he has to stand up for the honor of Hashem, the honor of the Torah, and not let it slide. I remember Sefer Achinuch interestingly brings again how we come out la halacha is a big discussion amongst the Rishonim. I mean, interesting. These it sounds like Musar more ethics, but it's actually halacha. When can you bear a grudge? When can you respond to an insult? When can you? And uh, Sefer Achinuch seems to hold that if someone insults you. Then you can respond. You don't have to stand. Someone calls you uh, Mamzer. You don't have to stand silently and let them get away with insulting you. You can stand up for your right and your honor. Since there is a mala, there is a middles chasidus to go beyond the requirement and just tolerate it and bear it and say, it's not him who's insulting me. It's Hashem sending me a message. So that's an interesting point, something to think about. Okay, now we're going to go on to the next line in the Mishnah. We go, so remember we said that two people would race to do the Trumas Hadeshin, the first avoided in the, in the morning, two Kohanim would race up, and then, and 
then they stopped that because it led to dangerous situations. They actually decided that you each Kohen would put out two one finger or two fingers. So if a Kohen is allowed to put out two fingers, either two fingers next to each other, obviously he's allowed to put up one finger. So No, a strong coin is only allowed to put up one finger. A weak coin who it's hard to lift up his finger without lifting up two fingers, he's allowed to put up two fingers. That's what it's saying. It says, We learned in a price, He can put out one finger, you're not allowed to put out two fingers. This is with a healthy coin, but a weakly coin who can't sit, lift up the one without the other can put up two. The Yechidim Rashi says, The Kohanim were a bit sick, so they were sitting off to the side. They're allowed to put up two fingers and they don't have to, but you still only count one finger. You're telling me that a coin who puts out one thing, two fingers, you only count it as one finger. He says, You're not allowed to put up your third finger, so you can't put out your fingers like that, um, your first and your third finger, and you can't put out your thumb and your first finger. Because of crooks. I remember you got a whole crowd of kohanim standing together they're all putting their hands in the middle so you have all these fingers and a kohen who puts out his finger and thumb in the chaos might be counted as two fingers so that's what we're concerned about if he does put out his third finger we count it as another finger if he puts out his thumb we don't count it and we kick him out of the pious out of the lottery for trying to crook he says not only that the one who tried to cheat by putting out his thumb and his forefinger we actually chuck him we actually give him lashes with the pakia by the Kohen appointed over the Pekia. It says, no, when it said we count his, two, his finger, even if he puts out a second finger, it's not saying that we count each finger as a separate count. It's that we count one finger. I, so the price is on arguing. Yes. Um, I don't understand how these... Oh, the yeah, sorry. I forgot to mention. Remember we said, so how this is how the lottery was performed in the, in the base Amigdash. Remember to like do the Truma Sadesh and there was a lottery. And through this parak we're going to learn there were actually three other lotteries in total four, as we said in the Mishnah. So what each, the Kohanim who were going to do that Avodah would each stand in a circle and put out a finger. There was a Kohen who was in charge of doing the lottery. And he would think up a ha number. So let's say there were seven Kohanim, and he would think of the number 62, whatever it is. And then he'd go around and count each finger until he gets to the number 62. And that person would be the, be the Kohen who gets to do the Avoida. So, that's what, so, so what we're saying is you put out one finger, you're not allowed to put out your thumb. So you're not allowed to put out your finger and your thumb because it can trick Again, you have a whole bunch of Kohanim standing and shuffling in the middle, trying to get their fingers counted. You can trick the Kohanim who's counting. Count as two. And you don't count, pardon? It would count as two if he puts his finger in his thumb. Yeah, and that's a problem, because each Kohanim is only counted as one. If he sees that two people down is number four... So then it will be four, three, and he puts out his two fingers, two and one, and he will get the 
get the thing. So he's only allowed to put out one finger. A weekly coin is allowed to put out two fingers like that. But again, it's only counted as one person. That's how the lottery works. Um, now we ask, my Pekia, what's the Pekia, the Kohen appointed over the Pekia, Omarav Marda, my Marda, what's a Marda, Omarav Papa Mitraka to tie the Posagratia. It's an Arab whip that had a split head. When we learned in the Mishnah that Ben Baba, who was appointed over the Pekia, Amina Pesilta, I thought it was actually referring to Wix. As we learned in another Mishnah, For Simcha's Beis HaShaeva, they used to take out the worn out clothes of the Kohanim and use them to light the torches. He would mafkin. Literally, we would say tear, but his understanding it as making it into weeks. But now that I've heard our Bryce, which says he gets the Kohen who tries to cheat by putting out two fingers, a thumb and, a, and his finger, he gets... Um, he gets lashed from the one appointed over the Pakir. I mean, my Pakir Nagda. What is the Pakir? A whip. So there was actually a Kohen in charge of keeping the other Kohanim in line that if they did something like try to cheat in the pious or whatever, they would get lashed. And this is the Kohen Amamuna Ala Pakir. We mentioned there was a story where two Kohanim were running up the ramp and they were equal. So Tonor Abon and the Bryce brings another story. They were running up. The one was going to win the race. So he took his, um, he took his um, dagger and stabbed him. Says Omar Rabbi Tzadok Al Malas Ulam Rabbi Tzadok standing by the Harabai says if Omar Achenu Beis Yisrael Shamar Arei Oimeki Yimotzei Chalu Banamo we find that when there's a corpse that between two cities by the Egla Rufa and we don't know what to do Vayitzu Zikonecho Veshoftecho the elders must go out and judge I will see shortly but what Rabbi Tzadok is trying to impress upon them the depressing situation that they're in that you have a coin stabbing another coin to try to get the other to try get the service, he says, Who's going to bring an egg rufa for us? For the city, is it on the city or is it on the Kohanim? And go and all the people were crying again for this tragic situation that happened in the base of Midash. The Kohen, the father of this young Kohen came forward and he saw that he was really rather on uh, like wriggling thrashing on the ground Omar Harehu Kaporoschem he says my son will be your kapora and he says my son is still uh, thrashing on the ground the knife is not Tome quite a harsh line his son's busy dying on the ground and he says quickly go save the dagger from Tuma we see that they were more careful with Tahara than murder. I, the death of his son wasn't such a, such a big deal as much as let's save the knife from becoming Tomei. It says, 
דם נוקי שופך מנשה הרבה מאוד אשר מולה יש ירושלים פה לא פה. מנשה ספולט מאץ' בלאד until ירושלים was fooled from one end to the other. I, again, from King Menashe, from when there was such murder and, and made light of murder, it seems even throughout the second temple, there was an aspect of human life had lost its value and it wasn't considered significant. Now the Gemara, so we have two stories about what happened when Kohanim were running. With well, the one story, we had two Kohanim were running up the ramp and one pushed the other and he broke his leg. And this story you just had, that they were running up the ramp and the one coin stabbed the other Kohen. So he says, Hi, my Sekodim, which happened first? He says, if this event of the coin stabbing the other coin wasn't enough to make them institute a lottery, well then would they have instituted a lottery over a broken leg? It's a much smaller problem. He says, It must be that he broke his leg. The case where the coin broke his leg happened first. But once they already set the, the once they already instituted a lottery for the first event when a coin got pushed off the ramp and broke his leg, why were these Kohanim running up the ramp to try and get into the four Amos that the one stabbed the other? It shouldn't have happened. There was a lottery to determine who got to do the Truma Sedation. So, They actually have to say that the story where the one coin murdered the other Kohen is what happened first. And they thought that this was an unusual freak event. And then since they saw that it's more usual, more likely, the rabbis instituted a lottery. So again, it must, at what happened, it was quite a horrific event that this Kohen was stabbed when they were trying to do the, the racing up the ramp to do Trumas Hadesh and they were both so desperate to do it that the one coin stabbed the other coin. Again, it was such a shock event that the rabbis didn't think that they needed to take action regarding how the Trumas Hadeshin was, who got to do the Trumas Hadeshin. But when, again, I don't know, a few days later or a few months later, a Kohen was pushed off the ramp, they realized it's not such an unusual event and they better intervene and do something about it. And that's why they instituted that the, it was chosen through lottery. Now we're just going to discuss the story a little bit more. Um, Rabbi Tzadok, when he saw this event unfold, he said, Our brothers Yisrael, we should have unity. Listen, when it says by Eglarufa, that's when a corpse is found between two cities, you bring the the yeah, the Sanhedrin take the goat and the egla, the the calf, and they break its neck, etc. That whole procedure. She says, "Who's going to bring it for us?" So Yerushalayim bas asi egla rufi says, "What was his havamini? You don't bring an egla rufi from Yerushalayim." Vahotanya said, "Vorim nemrim Yerushalayim." We know there's a price that teaches there were ten special things to do with Yerushalayim. This was one of them. If there's a city, if there's a corpse found between Yerushalayim and another city and it's close to Yerushalayim, you don't bring an Egla Rufa. The whole case of the Egla Rufa is where you don't know the murderer. If you know who the murderer is, then you deal with him, the Egla Rufa. And here we know who the murderer is. 
So the Gemara asks, no, Ela Kedai Laharbos Bechia. Rabbi Tzadok's motivation wasn't to teach us an halacha. He wasn't there to teach us um, to tell Bnei Yisrael there's a halacha of Egla Rufa. His, his idea was to bring them to tears, to bring them to mourning, to make them aware, aware of the tragedy. So two answers, how does this increase their awareness? So one answer from the Ritva is that we know that there are certain cases where you can bring the Egla Rufa for atonement. It says, how do Rabbi Tzadok's telling Bnei Yisrael, how do we achieve atonement in this situation? It's too, it's too shocking. There's no Egla Rufa. What are we going to do? And that brought Bnei Yisrael to tears. Another pshat in the Marshal is that Oh, sorry, that's the Marshal's pshat. Um, the, Ritva is, um, the Ritva gives a slightly different pshat. He says that if, we're cons- if the Torah is so concerned in a case of an Egla Rufa that if someone died and we can't find the murderer that you still have to go through a whole procedure to try to achieve atonement, in our case, which is much worse, how much more so we need to try to find a way for atonement and that brought B'nai Israel to tears. Then we just mentioned the, re- the continuation of the story. It says, The father came along and saw his child thrashing on the ground and he says, Let my son be your kapara. He says, But he's still thrashing, so get the knife out because it's not yet Tomei. You know, if a dead body touches a knife, it will be Tomei. So he said, Take the dagger out so it doesn't become Tomei. And the Mishnah coin, that they viewed um, Taharis Kalim more than more severe than murder. So the Gemara asked, Were they did they treat Shikha's Damim extra light, but they treated the importance of Taharis Kalim as they should or as they used to, or or maybe they treated murder as they always did, but they were much, much stricter with Taharat Kalim. Where did their values go wrong? Again, this is a way up of getting values very skewed. The father's more worried about the Tahara of the Naf than the death of his son, or more worried about the Tahara of the Naf than the murder of his son. And no one like really spoke out. We don't see any response of shock and horror to the father. So what value did they get wrong? Were they online with uh, Taharis Kalim, but they treated murder too lightly? Or were they online with murder, but they treated Taharis Kalim too severely? So he says, Toshmami the Konosiv. He says, no, from the fact that the Torah brought the, re- the Brisa brought the reason is because of the murders that Menashe killed. We see that it's murder that was light in their eyes. Now, this is a very important lesson for us to take to heart. Um, so often we know they're good values and they're lots of value. There is a value in keeping Tahara and Kalim especially in the base Amigdash Tahar. That is a value and that is an important thing to not have Tumah in the base Amigdash. However, we also know that they're much more important things and things that should actually jump to the forefront of your mind when they, that are more problematic. And in our lives we obviously think that we're upright and just but we also have to reassess our values. Sometimes we also place so much more importance on a mitzvah, on one mitzvah over another mitzvah. But who says we got it right? Um, 
people have a, are so concerned. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to pass in this, but you can think about it. People are so concerned in the corona situation about physical health. What about emotional health? I, know, I was reading an article a few a while ago that uh, teen suicide was on the rise due to the lockdowns in America. Many schools haven't even gone back yet. But I'm saying, so where's your? So you're going to close all schools? You're going to ban kids from socializing, and then they might not die from corona, but they'll suffer long-term consequences. Hopefully, not commit suicide, but suffer long-term consequences. So again, you've got to weigh up where your values. Where are you on track? Have you got your system correct? And that, I think that's just one example, but there are many. Some people place kashrus before Losh and horror. Some people play kashrus before, uh, you know, before uh, sensitivity to other people. We can, you can look and say, Ferachinuch, where he speaks about on Astvorim, and you can read about the Gomorrahs, the severity of insulting someone. So you can't, so some people are so careful about what they eat, and is it kosher, and does it have the best heksher, and who cooked it and where was it cooked and were all the ingredients 100% correct and then they're not careful with how they speak to other people and they insult or degrade other people so again you've got to weigh up not saying who's right and who's wrong and which mitzvahs we got online and which mitzvahs we take too severely or too leniently but it's something we have to weigh up um, are we on track with our uh, with our mitzvah with our with our with our personal value system, is it in line with the Torah? Is it correct? Are we are we placing Taharis Kalim higher up on the hierarchy and treating murder less careful because we're so caught up in Tahara? That's someone who's lost their value system, but it's something we have to keep in mind for our lives and our value systems as well. Given some examples, there are many, many more, but it's not such a far-fetched thing that sadly, as people, naturally, we get these things wrong and it's actually quite hard to realign and see which values are the ones that should be at the forefront of our minds, in the top of the hierarchy, and which values should actually be moved down, especially when we get caught up in mitzvahs and emotions. Each person has their personal connection to different uh, aspects of the Torah. So the more it goes on to... Um, we're now a new discussion. In our Mishnah, we discussed the Truma Sadesh, and that is the procedure. As we said, it's the first service, I guess, around the beginning of the day, about dawn, where the Kohen, one, the Kohen who got the lottery to go do it, or the one who was fastest up the ramp before that, would go and take a shovel full of ash off the pyre and put it by the east of the Mizbath. The Torah, straight after discussing that, discusses another avoider, which we'll call, so that's what's called Trumas Hadeshin, separating the ash. There was another avoider called Hotsas Hadeshin, taking out the ash. And that most Rishonim learn is when there would be too much ash piled up on the Mizbah, that it would start getting in the way, they would take the ash off the Mizbah to outside of Yerushalayim. So we have the Trumas Hadeshin and then the Hotsas Hadeshin. So now the Gomorrah's going to discuss in Torah Abonon, we learned in a Braiso Upashat, the Pasuk says he will take off his clothes, etc. And put on other clothes and then take out the take out the ash. Right, so this is the second of what we mentioned. So what is it? In other words, on the surface it's saying that he wears one set of clothes to do the Trumas Hadeshin and then before doing the Hatsas Hadeshin, taking the excess ash outside of the base of Midash, he puts on a different set of clothes. So Shomani Kaderach Yom Kippurim Big Day Kodesh Day Big Day It seems to be similar to Yom Kippur that he and it should work out that he takes off his Big Day Kahuna 
and he puts on regular weekday clothes. I by Yom Kippur we know that the Kohen Gadol, whenever it uses this phrase Uposhat Velogash Velogash it's telling us that he takes off his big day kahuna gadoila, I the eight garments with the breastplate and the ephod, etc., and he puts on his simple linen garments. So if that's the case, well then this Kohen who's taking out the Trumas does Trumas Hadeshen and then he's going to do Hotsas Hadeshen, he should change from his big day kahuna into his weekday clothes, regular clothes. It says, It says he will take off his clothes and he will wear other clothes. It could have left out the begotim acherim. It could have just said he takes off his clothes and he puts on other ones. Why does it say he puts on other clothes? It's to connect the two types of clothes. To tell us just as for the Trumas Hadesh and he wore the big day kahuna, his four linen garments, so too for the Hotsas Hadesh and he has to wear his big day kahuna. Oh, so then why does it say other clothes? Lower value clothes. I For the Trumas Hadesh he wears very good quality big day kahuna. For the Hotsas Hadesh where his clothes can get dirty and grubby because he's taking a huge amount of ash and carrying it all the way out of the base of Migdash. There he puts on other worn out ones or cheaper ones. You know, you get different qualities linens. So he puts on cheaper ones. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi says, No, you connect the word Achayim to the next one. Others, and he takes it out. He says, It teaches us that Bale Mumim, regular Kohanim who have a Mum, are allowed to take out the Deshen. I, Rabbi Eliezer, hold that this Achayim is not going on other clothes, it's going on other Kohanim. You would have said that Kohanim, it's an Avoida, part of the temple service, and then a Kohen with a Mum cannot do the Avoida comes along the Pasuk and tells us, no, it's not an avoider. It's not what's a classical use of the word avoider. That you need a Kohen who doesn't have any blemishes. It says, Oma Mar. So now we're going to mention, discuss this. It says, other garments, i.e. cheaper ones or lower quality. Like Rabbi Shmuel taught. The clothes that he cooks food for his master in. He shouldn't use to serve his master food. I, when you're busy in the kitchen and you're getting all dirty, and stuff the chef who's cooking when he comes to take out the food to the king he shouldn't be wearing the same clothes he must put on new fresh clean clothes so that's what when he does the trumas hadeshin which is an avoid in the base amigdash he can wear best good quality clothes but when he's doing the more i don't want to use the word grabby in connection to the avoid of the base amigdash but more a grabby avoider where his clothes are going to get dirty and stained because he's carrying a whole lot of ash a lot of ash outside of the base amigdash well, then he needs to, then he should wear different clothes. So that's why, granted, for the Truma Satation, he wears good quality clothes. And for the Hotsa Satation, he wears a lower level, out of respect, for the, out of respect for Hashem. Just as we see a machloikes by taking out the ashes, so too we see a machloikes by the Truma Satation. What was the machloikes? The Chachomim, the Tanakama held that. It's part of the avoider. You have to have a good kohen do the hotzah sadesh and take the ash. Whereas Rebbe Lezer holds it's not part of the avoider. You can have a 
Kain who has a mum do the Hotsar Sateshen. Now Reish Lokish comes along and says, just as he can do the Hotsar Sateshen, he can also do the Truma Sateshen. You don't need a fully fledged Kohen to do the Truma Sateshen. It's not a real avoider. Rabbi Yochanan says that the Machloikes is with only with taking out the ash, but the Truma Sateshen has to be done by an actual Kohen. Who doesn't have a mum? On oh, my time with Reish Lakish, what's the source for Reish Lakish? So says, If you're telling me that it's an avoider, how would he be allowed to do it with wearing just two of the clothes? I, the Torah regarding the Trumas Hadesh and the Torah just says, Mido bad the umichnesevad. I his linen pants and his linen shirt. But we know that there were four kohanim, four garments that a kohen had to wear. What about the belt and the hat? So by the fact that it says he just wears the linen uh, top and the linen pants must be, or the linen robe, must be he does not have, it's not a proper avoider, he's just wearing two of them. Of Rabbi Yochanan, what would Rabbi Yochanan say? He says, no, Gali Rachmane, No, by the Torah telling us that he needs to wear the tunic, the robe and the pants, it's obviously telling us he would also have to wear the hat and the belt. I, if it's not an avoider that he doesn't have to wear the big day kahuna, well then why does it mention he has to wear two of the big day kahuna? So it's mentioning two of the big day kahuna to tell us that he has to wear all of them. Mid or bad, or maishnah honey. So then why does it bother telling us? If the Torah would have just remained silent and just said he does the avoider, we would have assumed he wears his four clothes. So why does it come and list these two? So that's for other droshes. Midovan, midokamidosa, that it has to fit in perfectly. Michna sevat, katanya, why it mentions his linen pants. That's to teach us another point like the following brysa. Mina en shaloi hei dovel koidem le michna saim, shenem aru michna sevat yilbash al besoro. How do we know that something shouldn't separate before his pants? As it says... He puts his pants on his flesh. I, he must put his pants on first before any of the other garments. Where does he know this from? Because it doesn't use the normal word for a robe. It uses the word midosh. So that could be read as his measure. And How does he know that you have to put on pants first? Because it says on his flesh. It could have just said he wears the clothes. Why does it say he wears them on his flesh? That's to add in this point. Okay, now the Gomorrah is going to suggest that the Machloikas we just had is a Machloikas to know him. Uh, we've just said, again, very interesting, according to Reish Lokish, how he understands Rabbi Eliezer is neither the Trumas Hadeshin nor the Hotsas Hadeshin is an avoider. And therefore it doesn't have to... It, the kohen doesn't have to wear his full big day kahuna, and it also doesn't have to be perf- can be performed by a kohen with a mum, which you can't do avoid us. That's the one shot. There might be a way to learn that he does for the truma sedation. He has to wear all four garments, but I don't know if that's clear. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan says no. This that Rabbi Lezer says you, it's not an avoid is only the hatsor sedation, but the truma sedation is definitely a proper avoider. Okay, and we'll see how we try to learn this into a machloikes tonight. We'll leave that for tomorrow.